Welcome to Lucy's Lunchtime Literature Hour, the perfect podcast for your pathetic 20-minute lunch break. Today, we'll be talking about the 2009 novel, The Help, and how it is connected to the literary theory of gender studies. We'll be discussing how the characters in this story, as women in the early 1960s, conform to certain gender roles, acknowledge some injustices brought upon them by social norms, and how they challenge damaging stereotypes. The Help is a book set in Jackson, Mississippi, in the early 1960s. The story follows three women, Abilene, Minnie, and Skeeter, the first two being maids of the latter's high society friends. Abilene, who works for Mrs. Elizabeth Leifolt, a nervous woman and unskilled mother, is an expert at raising children. Wise in her late middle age and having lost both her husband and son and given up any hopes of making a career past that of raising other people's children, she resignedly lives alone in the poor African-American neighborhood. Minnie Jackson, her neighbor and close friend, at first works for Mrs. Hilly Holbrook, one of the meanest and most popular of society ladies. After being fired for a slight against her employer, Minnie works for Mrs. Celia Foote, an outcast among the rich for her poorer upbringing. Miss Skeeter, or Eugenia as her mother calls her, is a recent graduate of Ole Miss. While her friend left school years before to get married and start families, Skeeter stayed in college, working toward the seemingly impossible goal of becoming a writer. While her friends, Elizabeth and Hilly, and her mother continue to pester her about finding a man, Skeeter works diligently, first getting a position at the Jackson Journal, writing a housekeeping advice column, and then getting attention from Elaine Stein, a publisher at Harper and Row who urges her to write about something exciting and not often talked about. Skeeter, who was raised by the family maid, Constantine, is confused upon returning home to find brand new help and no explanation as to where Constantine went. She asks Abilene, while also seeking advice for her column, who tells her that Constantine was fired. This, along with Skeeter's revulsion at her friend's attitudes and behaviors toward their maids, inspires her to conduct interviews with black maids and get their stories about their treatment at the hands of their white employers. Although many of the maids involved, most importantly Abilene and Minnie, are afraid of speaking out, the increasing violence in the streets of Jackson against African Americans unites these three women to expose the blatant yet unseen racism of Southern high society. The author of The Help, Catherine Stockett, was born and raised in Jackson, Mississippi, the same town as her characters. Growing up, she had a maid and never questioned the normal part of life that was the rules between black and white. True to her Mississippian way, she is both proud and ashamed of her hometown. She says in the back of her book, in an essay titled Too Little, Too Late, that she never once asked her maid, Dimitri, what it felt like to be black in Mississippi. And because Dimitri died when Catherine was still young, she could no longer ask. 
This book is her way of imagining how Dimitri would respond to that question. The Gender Studies Literary Theory is about the ways gender and its associated norms are portrayed in literature. Gender Studies literary critics ask about the ways men and women are portrayed in a certain work, and how these portrayals either fit in with or challenge the norms of the time that the work was set or written in. If they fit, is it in a straightforward or ironic way? If they challenge, is it on purpose, and what is the author saying about these rejected norms? As mentioned previously, this book is set in the early 1960s, which also saw the beginning of a period called Second Wave Feminism. It was named this because it was a belated resurgence of women's rights activism several decades after the monumental women's suffrage movement of the late 1910s and early 1920s. Second Wave Feminism went beyond enfranchisement. While the suffragists at the start of the century won the right for women to vote, Women were given little opportunity to play large roles in society. After World War II, posters of Rosie the Riveter were taken down and replaced with ones featuring the shiny new housewife, encouraging young women to go back into the home. Second wave feminism grew as a response to this new all-American woman who raised the children and kept the house tidy for her husband. New generations of dissatisfied women grew up to be advocates for awareness of the issue of gender inequality. Issues that had previously been considered impolite and inappropriate to talk about, like domestic abuse, employment discrimination, sexual harassment, unequal pay, and legal inequality, were now brought to the table in demanding attention. Suddenly, people became aware of the stereotypes and standards that had shaped millions of women. One common aspect of womanhood in the 1960s was having kids almost immediately after getting married. Coming off of one of the biggest baby booms in American history up to that point, women in their late teens and early 20s were having children at staggering rates, despite their young age and inexperience. Necessity often trumped naivete, as it was often frowned upon to be married and not have kids. The faster a woman reproduced, the better. Contributing to this feeling of hurriedness was the popular idea of the feminine mystique, an idealized image of domestic femininity. Betty Friedan, author of the popular 1963 book, The Feminine Mystique, was an American feminist writer and activist. Her book, which is often credited for sparking the feminist movement of the 1960s, was written to show the assumptions that women would be fulfilled through housework, marriage, and children without the need for outside stimulus through careers, education, or political involvement. But 1960 brought something new to the table that would have changed this, as the FDA approved the first ever official contraceptive pill, Enovid, which would have allowed women to take control over their own bodies, some for the first time. This new medicine would make it easier for women to have real careers without having to leave for unexpected pregnancies. Yet, the pill, as it became known, was considered taboo. Millions of women were denied access, even if they had their husband's approval. The requirement of having children at this time is evident in the help. The character Elizabeth Leifold, one of Skeeter Phelan's closest friends, is a young and inexperienced mother. 
Although her age is never stated in the book, we know she is the same age as Skeeter, as they were in the same class in college, which she left early to marry Raleigh Leifold. Soon, she had a daughter, Mae Mobley, and hired a maid to help her. This maid, Abilene, saw right away that Elizabeth was in over her head. She describes her boss as terrified of her own child, often neglectful when care should be taken. Page 18, she doesn't even realize her daughter's diaper is full, and harsh with punishments. Page 22, Miss Leifolt slapped baby girl on the back of her bare legs for hugging her mom and accidentally yanking on the phone cord in her hands and causing it to fall to the floor. May Mobley is two and three over the course of this book, so of course accidents happen and she makes the usual ruckus. Yet Elizabeth treats her like she's a nuisance, exasperatedly chastising her for things way beyond her control as a toddler. It's clear that Miss Leifolt is unfit for motherhood and has a deep resentment toward her child for disrupting her life. On page 458, Abilene sees Miss Leifolt staring at May Mobley. I see that old disgust Miss Leifolt got for her own daughter, saved up special for her. Motherhood isn't for everyone, yet the pressures from society pushed Elizabeth Leifold to do as so many other women her age had done. Page 107, Elizabeth says right to her daughter, How I ended up with you when all my friends have angels, I just do not know. Elizabeth's relationship with her daughter shows how damaging and unhealthy the feminine mystique is for women. It will most likely affect May Mobley later on in her life. Distant and cold mothers often result in emotionally deprived children, and May Mobley, in all probability, might continue the cycle of shame with her future children, passing down the dysfunction through generations and perpetuating the stricture of young motherhood. Another aspect of feminism presented in the help is bringing awareness to domestic abuse. Domestic violence, like battery and rape, were extremely common in America, especially after World War II as war veterans came home with post-traumatic stress. People with PTSD commonly experience higher levels of anger and may also have greater difficulty in controlling it. Women were typically the outlets of this anger. During this time, spousal abuse was socially accepted and considered legal, as women were property of their husbands. During the period of second-wave feminism, activists lobbied for protective laws and worked to create organizations and shelters to protect victims of domestic abuse. The 1960s also saw a sharp increase in divorce rates as numerous wives across the country started to stand up for themselves and leave their abusive marriages. This can be seen in The Help. Minnie Jackson, maid of Hilly Holbrook and later Celia Foote, is a victim of such abuse. Her husband, Leroy, often beats her when he is drunk, but sometimes he doesn't even need such a catalyst. On page 359, Leroy wasn't on the Thunderbird this time. This time he beat me stone cold sober. He was just beating me for the pleasure of it. Fear of her husband at first dissuades her from taking part in Skeeter's interviews with Abilene. But after giving in, her primary concern isn't for the potential white backlash of her participation, but of Leroy's reaction to it. Minnie's relationship with her husband is a perfect example of the abuse women suffered in the early to mid-19th century. They had no escape route, especially with children. Minnie is trapped in a cruel and unforgiving marriage only for the benefit of her children. On page 366, she explains her situation. 
We don't talk about me leaving Leroy. Plenty of black men leave their families behind like trash in a dump, but it's just not something the colored women do. We've got the kids to think about. Minnie doesn't leave Leroy because of his paycheck to provide for her kids. Same as Minnie says of Leroy on page 153. He's no fool. He knows if I'm dead, that paycheck won't be showing up on its own. Minnie gets words of encouragement from Abilene on page 368. Lots of folks think if you talk back to your husband, you cross the line, and that justifies punishment. You believe in that line? Because that line ain't there, except in Leroy's head. Minnie finally starts questioning her situation rather than accepting. Page 486, she says, Who knows what I could become if Leroy would stop goddamn hitting me. Until finally she seeks freedom. After Skeeter gets Help published and Miss Hilly Holbrook starts snooping around, she gets Leroy fired from his job and tells him of Minnie's involvement with the book. Tired of being afraid of her husband, accompanied with the assurance of a job with Celia and Johnny Foote, spur her to get out and leave Leroy behind. Page 515, she tells Abilene, God help him, but Leroy don't know what Minnie Jackson about to become. The second wave of feminism is often criticized for being too white, but Minnie's story and the stories of countless other abuse victims show a parallel between women, no matter their skin color. As Abilene says on page 368, lines between black and white ain't there neither. Some folks just made those up long time ago. And now for a word from our sponsors. product to make your life so much easier? Are you tired of cutting out chunks of your hair when gum gets stuck in it? Do you wish you had something for that squeaky door hinge, dry skin, messy hair, and dim headlights? Do you want to get rid of cockroaches? Make your own candles? Do you want to fry chicken? Well, if the answer to all of these questions is yes, then you need to pick up a tub of Crisco All Vegetable Shortening. Minnie Jackson swears by it as the most important invention since they put mayo in the jar. The final topic we'll be talking about is women seeking independence and a life beyond the household. Skeeter Phelan is the character who embodies this search. She constantly questions restrictions placed on her by society's traditions. She's always stood out literally and figuratively. She is described as tall, awkward, and rebellious. She hates shopping and pampering, hates the idea of leaving school to get married because the thing she wants most in the world, which separates her from the majority, is a career. She longs to be a writer, a job in a male-dominated field. Page 68 through 69, she says, Sure, I dreamed of having football dates, but my real dream was that one day I would write something that people would actually read. But there are roadblocks. Skeeter is, of course, a woman. Looking for a gateway job into writing, she faces the usual employment discrimination and even remarks upon the unequal pay between the jobs for men and women. Page 68, the column for the female help wanted category, is small and filled with descriptors like sales girls with poise, manners, and a smile, and trim young secretary wanted, typing not necessary, to which Skeeter remarks, Jesus, if he doesn't want her to type, what does he want her to do? 
When she finally does find a promising job in the paper as a junior stenographer in the women's section, she finds the same job in the much larger and more diverse men's section, offering 50 cents more an hour. When Skeeter goes in to apply for a job at the Jackson Journal, her potential boss is astonished by her work ethic. Page 85. Damn, girl, didn't you have any fun? And the truth is, she didn't. Page 68, she says, No one could argue I hadn't worked hard at Ole Miss. While my friends were out drinking rum and cokes at Phi Delta Theta parties and pinning on mum corsages, I sat in the study parlor and wrote for hours. Mostly term papers, but also short stories, bad poetry, episodes of Dr. Kildare, Pall Mall jingles, letters of complaint, ransom notes, and love letters to boys I'd seen in class but hadn't had the nerve to speak to, all of which I never mailed. The job she does land at the Jackson Journal is probably the only female job they had, Miss Myrna, a housekeeping column, something that just screams stereotypical woman position, because God forbid a man know how to clean. But the most pressures Skeeter faces are at the hands of her mother, former first runner-up as Miss South Carolina, Mrs. Charlotte Boudreau Cantrell Phelan, who insists on calling Skeeter by her birth-given name, Eugenia. Her mother's main goal throughout the duration of the book is to fix Skeeter's boyish and unflattering ways to find her a husband. Page 67, Skeeter describes Mrs. Charlotte Phelan's Guide to Husband Hunting, Rule Number 1. A pretty petite girl should accentuate with makeup in good posture. A tall, plain one should accentuate with a trust fund. Mrs. Phelan scorns Skeeter for her decision to stay in school. Page 64, she says, Four years my daughter goes off to college, and what does she come home with? A pretty piece of paper. After Skeeter graduates, her mother tries to continue the husband-hunting training. She tries to persuade Skeeter, who is set on having a career, to take an easy job that would open up opportunities for engagements. But Skeeter again refuses to accept. Page 65. I'll never be able to tell Mother I want to be a writer. She'll only turn it into yet another thing that separates me from the married girls. But Skeeter doesn't want to get married. At least she doesn't see it as an integral part of her life, like her mother does, which both startles and exasperates her. Page 66. Mama, I say, just wanting to end this conversation, would it really be so terrible if I never met a husband? Mother clutches her bare arms as if made cold by the thought. Don't. Don't say that, Eugenia. Why, every week I see another man in town over six feet, and I think, if Eugenia would just try. Later, on that same page, Skeeter ponders her choices. You can tell that all of her mother's nagging and all of her friends' successes in the realm of traditional womanhood have affected her already low self-confidence. I shudder with the same left-behind feeling I've had since I graduated from college, three months ago. I've been dropped off in a place I do not belong anymore. Certainly not here with Mother and Daddy. Maybe not even with Hilly and Elizabeth. Despite feeling inadequate for not living up to her family's ideas of her, Skeeter pushes through. She ends up attracting the attention of an official publisher in New York. She goes on to write about something real, a topic she genuinely cares about. Her first attempt at a book gets published, and she leaves Jackson, Mississippi to live alone in New York, a big step for an unmarried woman. 
Skeeter's character is the model for challenging the 1960s gender roles placed on women. It's obvious Catherine Stockett wanted the character of Skeeter to represent a 1960s feminist, who questioned and then broke off entirely with the traditional ideas of femininity. Stockett's snide comments about Skeeter's mother's nagging and her biting dialogue make for a wildly entertaining character that you just can't help but root for. Stockett also gave us my favorite line in this entire book, and maybe my favorite line from a book ever, which perfectly sums up the, for lack of a better word, oppression Skeeter faces by her mother's attempts to fix her up for marriage. Page 195. Don't take the Lord's name in vain, Eugenia Phelan. Just put some lipstick on. Catherine Stockett's main purpose for this book was to tell the story of the maltreatment of African-American help in Southern households. But her references to the feminist movement that began in the period the story is set in cannot be ignored. Her subtle yet keen descriptions of Elizabeth Leifold and her cluelessness about motherhood show a character deeply wounded by playing into society's standards about young wives. The distress Elizabeth endures at the hands of a conventional moray reveals the roots of the long-held dissatisfaction women had put up with for decades. Through the character of Minnie, Stockett gives a poignant message about the courage and support needed to escape toxic relationships. And most importantly, the character of Skeeter is the model of the true new woman, one who plants herself like a tree and refuses to move. One who does not quit school and derail their lives to chase after the idea of femininity given to them by society. Skeeter represents an age of women who make their own definitions of femininity. Stockett uses Skeeter as the torchbearer, our guide into the developments of the 60s that paved the way for the third wave of feminism in the 90s and inspired multiple successive generations. This episode of Lucy's Lunchtime Literature Hour was brought to you by my good friends Coke Zero and Sleep Deprivation and our sponsor, Crisco, the best invention since they put mayo in the jar.